Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Chelsea White in Portland, Oregon. And I'm Christy Taylor in New York. This week on the show, what a half-synthetic yeast means for the future of bioengineered organisms, how a century-old idea for harvesting energy from the ocean is coming closer to reality, and how crabs left the ocean 17 different times. But first, an exciting story of how spinal cord stimulation is helping a man with advanced Parkinson's disease walk more easily. Biomedical editor Alexander Thompson is with us. Hi, Alex. Hello. So tell us about this. It sounds like it could be, you know, an important advance for the quality of life for people with Parkinson's. Yes. So this story is based on the experience of one person so far, but the research could lead to more commonly available treatments for people who have movement difficulties due to Parkinson's. The man's called Mark and and he's had Parkinson's disease symptoms for 30 years. And like about 90% of people with the condition, he's had significant difficulty with his movement. In particular, he experienced something called gait freezing, which is a sudden episode of being unable to walk despite trying to. And in the past, it caused him to fall as much as five or six times a day. Wow, that sounds really dangerous, but also really frustrating. Yeah, I can imagine it's really difficult and the existing options for treating these symptoms are either deep brain stimulation or medications that target the areas of the brain affected by the loss of dopamine, which is the chemical that helps to regulate movement. But many people don't respond well to these, especially if their condition is advanced. So is that why they've turned to spinal cord stimulation, I guess? Yeah, so spinal cord stimulation is a technique that's already been explored to restore movement for people with some spinal cord injuries. It's even helped some people to stand or walk again. And this technique in particular, it's called epidural electrical stimulation, and it involves implanting an array of electrodes in the space above the dura. That's a tissue layer that covers the spinal cord. And these electrodes respond to motor neurons that fire when you move your legs to walk. So in Mark's case, it's in his lumbar spine or or the lower back. There are these sensors then on Mark's shoes and legs that sort of listen for the signals from those neurons that he's trying to move. And then the sensors activate the stimulators to assist his legs' neurons in firing. So is it just that simple then? You know, insert electrodes, attach sensors and go? Well, not exactly. I mean, Mark spent several months helping the researchers develop this device specifically for his body. So first they had to map his neurons so they could specifically target only the neurons for his legs. They also customise it to his specific movement needs. So he had greater difficulty with one leg than the other. So they applied more stimulation to that particular limb. They also had to help Mark learn how to work with the stimulators, so he trained for three months, but by the end of that period, he had more or less stopped experiencing gait freezing, 
And two years down the line, he said he hardly falls at all and he's able to walk several kilometres at a time without the assistance of a cane or helper. That's an amazing story. And it sounds like it makes a really huge difference in Mark's life. But is this something that can be offered to other patients easily or even affordably? I think it's progress, even if it's just one person benefiting at the moment. And the team is absolutely excited that they've demonstrated that targeting the lower back with electrodes can work in Parkinson's related movement deficits. But they've also absolutely got years of development and further testing before a device like this would be able to reach people outside of clinical trials. And as I've said, a lot of work went into making this implant work for Mark. So whether the process of you know, mapping neurons, personalising the stimulation and then training the user could be made faster and easier, well, that remains to be seen. Up next, an international team of researchers has created a yeast cell whose DNA is half manufactured in a lab. This is a major step in the field of synthetic biology, which focuses on altering organisms' genomes to give them specific traits that we can then benefit from. And while we've made similar accomplishments in viruses and bacteria, yeast represents a greater challenge, and this research has more potential to translate to more complex organisms. Michael LePage is here. Michael, how does one actually go and make a synthetic yeast? So uh, what the researchers have done is they've taken the DNA sequence of the yeast genome and they've played around with it on a computer and they've made lots of tweaks and changes and tried to improve it. And they've then gone back to the lab and actually manufactured that DNA sequence they designed on the computer. And they've then used it to replace the natural genome of yeast. Now, the project isn't complete. So they, they've completely done all 16 chromosomes, but they've only actually put eight back in the yeast so far. So they, they expect to finish in about another year or so. Now, as, as you mentioned, researchers have made viruses and bacteria with artificial genomes before. The thing about yeast is that it's a complex cell, like all the cells in plants and animals. So it's got a much bigger genome and it's divided into different chromosomes and so on. Is there a larger goal here, Michael? What does creating a synthetic yeast get us that creating simpler things doesn't? Well, there are two things. One is just basic science. So if you can make a yeast from scratch like this, it, it's teach you an awful lot about how complex cell behaves. And so the team are making changes that they thought would be fine, and then they turn into great problems. So they're learning a lot just from, from doing this. The second point is to use this yeast to make stuff for us. So at the moment, a lot of the drugs and chemicals we're getting, they come from plants, and you have to grow a lot of the plants just to get a tiny amount of the chemicals. And it's much more efficient to use things like yeast to make these chemicals, but it's still pretty difficult to create those yeast strains that we need to make them. Okay, but then why redesign yeast entirely from scratch? Could we just make less drastic modifications? I mean, we've already been using yeast to create insulin for decades, right? Yeah, I mean, you can do that. And we have. I mean, as you mentioned, insulin is a big one that's been produced in yeast for decades, as you said. And there are also some perfume ingredients and some food flavorings that are already produced in yeast, besides, of course, things like beer. But the thing is, all natural living organisms are a bit of a mess because evolution doesn't have any kind of forethought or intelligence. And the genomes of most species also, they littered with genetic parasites. And what this means is it makes it more difficult to modify organisms to do what you want them to do. And then when you have modified them, they can often sort of start changing and do unexpected things. And so the idea with the synthetic yeast is to create an organism that's much more predictable and controllable, that we can modify to do what we want it to do. So basically, the changes they've made 
mean, first of all, that researchers can make this yeast evolve much faster when they want it to change. But then when they've sort of finished creating an organism that can make a certain chemical, it also is more stable. It doesn't sort of change and do unexpected things once once it's created. What sort of things are we talking about with, with regard to what we want it to do? Well, one of the projects they're working on is the creation of biofuels. But really, there's there's not much that yeast couldn't make in, in terms of drugs <laughs> and chemicals. So, uh, the wonder thing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think we're moving towards this future where it's just going to become standard to use things like this yeast to churn up pretty much any drug or chemical we want. And, you know, that you think about that, that's going to be really valuable for space exploration. So instead of astronauts having to take every conceivable drug with them in case of emergency, we could just send them the DNA sequence that they can sort of stick into a bit of yeast and say, well, here's, here's this medicine, now make it on the spot. That sounds science fiction level wonderful, Michael. But you were also saying earlier that synthetic yeast is a big step on from synthetic bacteria. So what's the next big step on from that? You know, will we soon have synthetic worms or flies? I would vote for a synthetic mosquito next, maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure about a synthetic mosquito. So I asked the project leader that, and I was expecting him to say, oh, maybe we'll get around to fruit flies. But apparently they've they've already used a technology that was created to make this yeast that's already been used to rewrite chunks of the mouse genome to create mice for medical research. Now, the mouse genome is about 200 times bigger than yeast. So with the current technology, it, it would take decades to create a synthetic mouse. But this sort of project leader was saying, you know, then technology is getting better all the time. And he expects actually quite soon it's going to be actually feasible to create a, a mouse with a, an entirely artificial genome. Wow, that's so amazing. Coming soon, mouse 2.0. <laughs> Each week, we bring you some of the most fascinating news in science, medicine, and technology. But on Dead Planet Society, Leah Crane and I also rearranged the solar system just to feel something inside. This week, we unified the asteroid belt and made all those little rocks into one big planet. That's already in your feed. And if you're looking for your next out-of-this-world read, Culture Lab is coming next week with an interview from our errant host, Rowan Hooper. He talked to author Samantha Harvey about her new book, Orbital, which he calls, quote, a beautiful love letter to Earth from the International Space Station. Outside, the Earth reels away in a mass of moon glow, peeling backward as they forge towards its edgeless edge. The tufts of cloud across the Pacific brighten to nocturnal ocean, to cobalt. And mark your calendars for a special live event. How much do you know about the weed called cannabis and how much of that is actually true? Health reporter Grace Wade is hosting a virtual event with physician and leading cannabis specialist Peter Grinspoon about the current state of research on this complex, controversial plant. From potential medical benefits to the known risks and side effects, he'll separate the science from the hype. That's coming up on Tuesday, November 28 at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll have a link in the show notes at newscientist.com podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And now, everything old is new again. How a 140-year-old idea about harnessing the ocean's energy might be used to supply clean energy to islands. The system would harness the ocean's innate warm and cold layers and no fossil fuels. Environment reporter James Deneen is on the story. James, how would this work? Yeah, so this technology is called Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion, or OTEC. And as you said, it's really an old idea. Way, way back in 1881, this French physicist realized it might be possible to use the difference in temperature between the warm surface of the ocean and cold water deeper down to produce energy. And the basic idea is you use the surface water warmed by the sun to heat a working fluid such as ammonia or water at low pressure, which then spins a turbine as it evaporates. And then you use cold water from the deeper layers to cool the fluid and repeat the cycle. It's a bit like how steam is used in a power plant, but instead of producing the steam by burning natural gas or coal, you're using the heat in the ocean. And the ocean has a lot of heat. If you could capture a lot of it in this way, researchers have estimated you could, in theory, meet the entire world's electricity demand using OTEC. That's an incredible amount of energy. And when I think about, you know, you say the ocean has a lot of heat, even if it's not super hot, right? It's a big body of water with a lot of heat energy in it. So why don't we have OTEC plants everywhere already supplying all our electricity if this idea has been around for so long? Well, people have tried, and there's a small community of OTEC diehards who think that there's still a lot of overlooked potential here, but naturally there are some technological hurdles. There are actually some attempts by another French engineer named Georges Claude um, in the early 20th century, but they flopped for various reasons. And then there was a resurgence of interest in OTEC again in the 1970s when the oil crisis drove a search for new sources of energy. And a few demonstration projects were built at the time by the US Department of Energy, including in Hawaii and another one in the Pacific island of Nauru. But one was destroyed in a storm and nothing took off. One persistent issue in these otherwise relatively simple systems has just been moving the water. You have to have these huge kilometer long pipes to reach the cold, deep water. And it's hard to make those that can withstand you know, the harsh ocean conditions. But now in recent years, fresh urgency to transition away from fossil fuels to mitigate climate change, plus some technological advances in offshore energy have brought some hints of a sort of OTEC resurgence. I guess that means we've got some people building very long pipes then. Are there new projects underway? Yes, here and there. A small OTEC plant has been supplying a little bit of energy to the grid in Hawaii since 2015. And another one has been running in Okinawa, Japan since 2016. In 2019, there was a little bit of news when a Korean company tested an OTEC system that might later be installed on the Pacific island of Kiribati. And Chinese researchers recently tested a small ship-based system in the South China Sea. I also spoke with the head of a UK-based company called Global OTEC that has plans to install a larger 
1.5 megawatt floating system near the islands of Sao Tome and Principe off the coast of West Africa by 2026. That's really cool, especially the ship-based system. I mean, I, I suppose it makes sense that OTEC would be particularly useful in that kind of situation or for powering you know, islands that are a little bit more cut off. Yes. Tropical islands in particular are strong candidates for OTEC for a few reasons. One is they have high energy costs, largely because they're reliant on diesel generators. And also the ocean temperatures around tropical islands are well suited for OTEC. They have warm surface water and deep cold water that's easily accessible from shore because you know you don't have to get off the continental shelf. So you wouldn't need as long a pipe to get the cold water to do OTEC. Global OTEC's floating design tries to deal with this pipe problem by having the pipe just go straight down into the cold water from the platform rather than running from shore. There's a few other reasons islands are well-suited for OTEC. They have less space for other types of renewables and fewer options for sources of continuous baseload power, which is a really important difference between OTEC and other intermittent renewable energy like wind and solar. The heat difference in the ocean doesn't fluctuate like the wind or the sun rising and setting, so you can get continuous power from an OTEC plant. So all of this makes me wonder if we should expect to see lots of OTEC systems everywhere soon, or at least, you know, around all, all of the islands that would be suitable for it. So I think at this point it would be, it would, it would be going too far to say that. There's not really a sign of, of a bunch of stuff being built, though there are these hints. The existing projects are really small scale, and Global OTEC is still struggling to raise the money just to build its first small scale project in uh, West Africa. But I spoke with some researchers who are excited about OTEC, especially for developing island states. So, you know, maybe there is a future for OTEC after all. But as I've mentioned, this technology has a long history of big promises that didn't pan out. That sound means it's time for Life Form of the Week. So most invertebrates evolved to leave the ocean one time. But new research has found that crabs made their way to new homes on land up to 17 different times in the 230 million years since they arose. And they've used multiple different kinds of ecosystems, such as mangroves and beaches. Some of them even went back to the ocean a couple of times. I mean, that would explain why they're found so many different places on Earth now. I, I mean, deep hydrothermal vents. Uh, I think they've even been found in streams on the tallest mountains in the world. Like, it really feels like it's crabs all the way down on this planet. <laughs> yeah, it does. And my first thought when I heard this was, I wondered whether it was related to that very cool process called carcinization, which is the tendency for crustaceans to evolve a body that's shaped like a crab. In some ways, when I heard about carcinization, I thought, oh, does that mean crabs are just inevitable? <laughs> but this isn't that. This is about what are called true crabs, which turn out to have a real knack for being evolutionarily flexible. So Chelsea, how do researchers know this, that they evolved to leave the ocean 17 times? You know, I can't imagine it's easy to look back hundreds of millions of years, especially with animals that don't have bones. Yeah, it takes some work. <laughs> Reporter Jake Bueller wrote this story about how researchers reconstructed the evolutionary history of crabs. And by the way, fun fact, there are more crab species in the world than there are mammal species. What? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> So anyway, the research team focused on 333 species across 88 families in the group Brachyura and combined both fossil analysis with genetic data. 
And then they also did something I think is really cool, which is they ranked different species on their degree of adaptation to land habitats, not just a binary, do they live on land, do they live in the ocean? And that let them make a more accurate timeline of when crabs might have left the ocean and also what traits the ancestral ocean-leaving crabs might have had. That sounds like a really exhaustive uh, scientific analysis process. I'm kind of tired just hearing about it, but... (laughs) What else did they learn? You know, we have this number, 17, but are there any other patterns or or trends that they uncovered? So, yeah, that 17 itself surprised the researchers. But they also found one subset of crabs that had done this trick six times all on their own. Hmm. And this could suggest that some groups have a variety of body shapes and other adaptations that make them more predisposed to leave the ocean. And it wasn't always a straight never looking back escape from the sea. (laughs) Some crabs did go straight to beaches or mangrove habitats, but others came to land indirectly. They left the ocean via estuaries or rivers. So is this a, you know, wow, look at those little crabs go kind of story where we await our inevitable crab overlords? (laughs) Or can this teach us more about evolution in a wider swath of life forms? You know, I think it's both. We can admire how adaptable crabs have been in history and the speed with which they covered the globe and their sheer ability to exist in different places. But this method of tracing their evolution could also improve our understanding of how other species broke their primordial bond with the sea and what kinds of evolutionary steps are required. You know, are there shared patterns across a wide diversity of species? That kind of thing. And having a non-binary approach to whether animals are land or sea creatures might help make those patterns more apparent. Chelsea, I think I have the cutest story of the week, as long as you agree that rats are cute, and especially rats that make happy squeaks when they hang out with their friends. That feels so relatable. I don't usually find rats cute, but this sounds pretty adorable. How do we know that's what they're doing, though? That's a fair question. Most rat vocalizations are too high-pitched for us to hear. So research into rat social noises tends to involve microphones and then some audio processing. But this team was also investigating whether they could use tiny microphones to understand the vocalizations of individual rats better, as opposed to having, you know, one giant microphone to capture a large group hanging out. And they developed these itty-bitty microphones that they could place inside a rat's nose. Oh my gosh, those have got to be absolutely tiny. Yeah, if you look at the images from the paper, they're not exactly tiny because they're still kind of like a tube that like connects the electronics, (laughs) you know, coming out. So it's a little awkward looking, but the microphone itself is quite tiny. So while they were testing this out, they did observe that their test rats were making high-pitched squeaks while interacting with other rats, something that we have already observed. But because each rat was wearing a wire, so to speak, they were also able to see that these happy squeaks seemed to come very randomly. So not in reaction to something specific another rat was doing, like, you know, grooming them or sniffing or or anything like that. And the rats were most squeaky when they were in physical contact with other rats. So the researchers say that all of this suggests that the sounds might just be rats expressing positive emotions that they have about being in contact with another rat. You know, just happy to be here. Okay, that is incredibly cute. And it seems promising that you can learn so much from getting individual rats their own microphones. Are we in for a rat podcast next? New Scientist Squeakly? (laughs) I would listen to that podcast in a heartbeat. (laughs) Uh, And it's definitely a good sign for this research approach. Uh, Another result from this study, for example, is that they found a new sound from their rats, one that is 
technically in the range we can hear, but the rats were making it very, very quietly. And they only made it around each other, not around, you know, human beings, for example. So they still don't know what this new sound is for, but they say the mini mics could help other scientists get closer to that sensory and social world that the rats inhabit. Okay, so maybe rat radio isn't coming soon, but I've got a story about underwater radio. So are we making podcasts for whales now? Pods for pods? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll have to make one podcast that's too high for human hearing and another that's too low. Hmm. But actually, this is a story about how we may finally have a way for people underwater to communicate with each other using radio waves. So that's not previously been possible because water is mostly opaque to radio frequencies. The signal just fades really quickly. And the alternatives, which are acoustic signals like sonar, tend to be slow and bad at carrying lots of information. So how did we solve radio waves then, assuming physics didn't magically change overnight? <laughs> no, the physics did not change magically overnight. Wouldn't that be wild? Mm. But researchers figured out that you can send the same radio signal across the surface of water. So this relies on a 17th century principle that light will always take the fastest route to its destination. And in fact, light is already traveling across water in surface waves at radio-like frequencies. So they use specialized antennas to direct their radio signals in the same way and then collect it several meters away. In theory, they said this would be like offering two scuba divers the ability to use walkie-talkies even when they're still submerged. And because this is radio, you can send a lot of data across, possibly even high-speed video. Oh, that's really cool. So since this relies on sending radio signals along the surface of water, is there a limit to how deep you can go and you know still get that good high-speed signal? Yeah, definitely. The team's findings suggest that these antenna really only work if you're close to the surface. So if you have two scuba divers, for example, and they're both eight meters below the surface, they can talk by radio up to 10 meters away from each other. So unfortunately, I don't think our whale podcast is going to have legs. But the exciting thing, according to the researchers, is that this development could enable communication at very far distances for those applications where the recipients are at the right depth. Well, it's almost the weekend. Feels like a good time to talk about sports ball. Are you interested in some advice for making your badminton game better? Is it just get better hand-eye coordination? Well, in this case, the advice would actually be to become left-handed, like me. It appears that left-handed people have a very slight advantage in the game of badminton, and this is because the feathers that make up the tail of the shuttlecock are arranged to just very, very slightly overlap. This introduces a tiny asymmetry to the shuttlecock when it spins, and it means that unlike a round object like a tennis ball, which can spin in any direction, a shuttlecock will naturally spin counterclockwise. So how does this counterclockwise spin benefit left-handers then? Yeah, the advantage comes in a particular move called the forehand slice, where the player will just brush the shuttlecock with the racket to change its direction. So a team of researchers took high-speed video of players, and they discovered that when a right-hander does this slice move, they're accelerating that natural counterclockwise spin. But when a left-hander does a slice, they're hitting from the opposite side, and they're actually temporarily forcing the shuttlecock to spin clockwise. At some point after that, though, the asymmetry still wins. The shuttlecock stops spinning, reverses back to its natural counterclockwise spin. And all of this means that it has less forward momentum to continue flying through the air. So a left-hander slice will land much sooner and force their opponent to work harder to return the shot. So from here on out, I'm blaming my poor badminton shots on this. <laughs> uh, does this mean that badminton is completely dominated by left-handed people like you? Actually, no. And 
I would never dominate a badminton anyway because my hand-eye <laughs> coordination is terrible. But there is no significant trend in the handedness of badminton's top players, which makes the researchers suspect that there's some other hidden disadvantage for left-handers elsewhere in the game. So stay tuned, I guess, for that follow-up study. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. You can find all the stories we talked about today in the show notes, and you can subscribe to this podcast on whichever app you're listening on. And as always, if you like the great stories we're bringing you, from the serious to the silly to new scientists squeakly, please give us a rating or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. We'll be back next week. Bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.